Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. The show is going out on a Saturday today. We were going to wait for the Sunday, but nothing is going to compare with the showing the Fianna Fáil gave in the by-election. So you know what, we may as well do it now. This episode we're going to be talking about, we'll talk for a couple of minutes about the by-election generally, just what some of the results mean for different parties, but the majority of this show, and we'll see how long this runs, is going to be about Fianna Fáil, what the result means from Fianna Fáil, and what Fianna Fáil can do, if anything, moving forward to try and ensure that this is not replicated at the general election. Because if it's replicated at the next general election... Fianna Fáil is, at the very least, comatose with a lot of beep, a lot of machines going around it, beeping and beeping. For those who weren't aware, this was the by-election in Dublin Bay South. It was caused by Owen Murphy realising that he can do more outside government than he can in the current government. It was won by Ivana Batrick, which means Ivana Batrick has finally been elected. James Gagan with Fine Gael came quite close behind her, but was never really within touching distance of her. Labour pulled 30.2% of the first preference votes. Fine Gael pulled 262 Sinn Féin were on 15.8, the Green Party were on 8, Fianna Fáil were on 4.6% of first preference votes. And then you had the Social Democrats on 3.2, People for Profit on 2.8, Aintu on 2.8, which is interesting, and Independence around 5, and that was your, your mix of this. Nearly every party, and every one of the major parties, saw their vote share decline. The only parties who didn't were... Uh, the independent vote went up by 2.3. Aintu's vote went up by 2.8, but they never, I don't think they've stood in this constituency before, so that's basically a first time record. People for Profit went up by 0.3, and Labour's vote went up by 22.4%. That's compared with the uh, 2020 election. Massive increase for Labour, yeah. Fine Gael went down 1.5. Sinn Fein went down 0.3. The Green Party went down 14.4%. And Fianna Fáil went down 9.2. So just on the general results, the way this is, seems to be being presented in Irish media at the minute is that this was a disaster for Fine Gael, that they couldn't hold a seat that Owen Murphy had, had been in. Yeah. I don't really think so. 26.2% is not terribly shy of what Owen Murphy and Kate O'Connell together took in the last election. I think it's about a percent below that. It's also a by-election. They don't tend to be good for government candidates. Gagan seems to have taken. Is the Fine Gael vote in this constituency? If if we can have us, we can surmise, I guess, that this is in and around what would look like a, the Fine Gael core vote here. And that's what he took. And OK, if a few weeks ago, he was a pretty hot favourite uh, to take the constituency. And a lot of that was based probably on the Irish Times poll and then the wider polling. Uh, at a national level, uh, it was remarked by a number of people, perfectly reasonably, that with Labour trolling around at around three percent nationally, the prospect of Labour taking this seat seemed to be rather an extraordinary notion. But Gagan really had to be ahead on the first count. He had to be ahead, maybe six, seven, well, seven, eight points ahead, because Ivana was always going to be very transfer friendly. The Greens. The Social Democrats, even the Independents, the left-wing parties, there was always going to, ultimately, those as those votes were going to funnel down to Ivana more likely than they were ever to go to, 
to, to James Gagan. And it is a tremendous result. First, I would say a personal result for Ivana Bacic to get not only to win the seat, but to top the poll and to come in at four four point four percentage points ahead of Gagan. No, and I mean, we, we joked about the fact Ivana has stood for election so many times and failed. And we said we didn't find her uh, CV terribly compelling. But at the end of the day, she won and she won convincingly. And she won in a way where it kind of seems like a lot of that has to be personal to Ivana rather than Labour. Well, <clears throat> it was noted that Ivana, much like Fianna Fáil candidates back in the in 2011, uh, made sure that the Labour part of the posters was rather, was rather small and the, the Ivana part was rather big. As a brand, she has very strong recognition nationally. And in a constituency like this, I mean, one thing you can't pretend, it seems to me, is that this is some kind of angry protest vote. Ivana Batic is not somebody who is a protest candidate. She is, you know, she's an absolute, she's a fixture in the Labour Party. Senator, he's run, I think, three times previously in Dáil elections, three different constituencies. She has a high political profile. She's regularly on TV and on the radio. She's Reed Professor of Law in Trinity, as we know. But to me, Gary, actually, this is possibly also a, a, an indication that there's an old Irish tradition called Mehel, and Mehel is still alive. Do you know? Are you aware of Mehel? I'm not, Michael. Mehel is the old tradition in the country where the neighbours and the friends will come in, say you have to build a barn or save the hay or do the, the thrashing or whatever. All the neighbours will come from the parish in to help. And Ivana, I think, in part, was the object of a great Mehel moment when everybody rolled up their sleeves and said, you know what, let's Get behind Ivana. So the the Times, the RTE, most of the media, a lot of the 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 important decent people that inhabit the the political world of Ireland got in behind Ivana. And James Gagan, for what, frankly, I mean, I don't know the man from Adam. I wouldn't know him from a hole in the wall. Seems like a fairly inoffensive kind of a person, but a qualified person, not an unqualified person at all, a quite perfectly qualified person, was this, this the subject of the most awful undermining attacks. I mean, the Malali article, of course, was there, but all of the, the reportage of him as just stale and male and bourgeois and just the same and just nothing but bland marketing, whatever. And, in, contra- in contrast to Ivana, who knows the mean streets, Gary, she knows the mean streets very well, um, from, her, from her position defending possibly the mean streets in the high courts. But they rolled in behind her, and she had one of the, I would say, one of the best helped campaigns that we have seen in a long time. And while we give kudos to Ivana personally, I, I think she we have to recognise that she did get a fair bit of help to get her there. But get there she did. On the Gagan front, with that kind of result, if that can be replicated in a general election, Gagan will take a seat in this constituency. The Green Party was interesting. I mean, a, a minus 14.4% result compared to 2020. Is that Eamon Ryan's personal vote or is that the Greens not having a great time of it in general? I suspect a lot of this is about people making a decision in a sense, like the Social Democrats, maybe some Finnegators, uh, the Greens, people like that say, you know what, let's uh, let's get Ivana elected. And the real worry here has to be for Jim Callaghan, not for not for James Gagan. That's not the problem. And I don't think I don't think Eamon Ryan will be in trouble. I think when it comes around to a general election again, a lot of those 
votes that have perhaps been loaned to Ivana will return to the Green Party. This was, you could maybe you could call it tactical voting, but rather this is a candidate that they liked. This is a personality they liked, that they approved of, and they felt comfortable voting for. They didn't want to vote for Fine Gael. The Greens, it, it, it was always unlikely that they were going to, in any great sense, translate to Fine Gael, but rather they said, no, uh, Ivana, Ivana, she, she suits she suits the profile of the kind of person that I like to see in the doll and, and they lent her her lent her their vote. Uh, the problem is that now they're going to have to uns somebody is going to have to unseat Ivana if the constituency is going to stay as was. I think Aintu will be happy with this result. Two point eight percent in Dublin Bay South, which you wouldn't have thought would be a constituency terribly fond of Aintu. My concern there is, or really my question is, they put a lot of effort into that constituency. Is that something they can replicate nationally? Because if they can replicate it nationally, and you know, they're a percentage point ahead of that, maybe two, in rural Ireland, in some of those areas, the more conservative or just more rural areas, you're not in a bad position going into the next election. No, and I think that Aintu will be more than a couple of points ahead in many, many constituencies in the rural areas. But then again, you run into the issue of it doesn't matter if you're polling at that nationally if you don't run enough candidates. No, you have to, they have to be in a position to run enough candidates to hit that magic number. The, the magic number is 2%, is it not? 2%. Then you have state funding of the party. They will already get some state funding because Padder was elected and he's the leader of the party. Yeah. But you want to get that 2%. And then if you can get additional TDs, you're getting more money in and that's going to make things a hell of a lot easier for them. Yes. Sinn Féin's vote is interesting. You're down a little bit. I don't think that's terribly surprising because Chris Andrews has a strong personal vote in the area. I would personally assume that Chris Andrew is delighted that Boylan did not get elected and I'm not as sure as this but I would suspect that Boylan herself might be quite grateful that she wasn't elected in this constituency as opposed to where she has been focusing most of her attention and is therefore more likely to keep the seat in a general election. Yes I mean if Sinn Féin were faced with a the, the prospect of having to defend two seats in this constituency, you'd look at the, there's a very real risk that you split your vote and you end up with no seat. The SOC Dems going down 1.4. That's an interesting one because they are a party perfectly suited for this constituency. And maybe some of that is just people going to Havana instead and just being tactical with it. But at the same time, I don't think it's what they would have wanted to see. No, I think they would, if they'd been given their druthers, obviously they would have preferred to have a larger first share of the first preference vote and then afterwards transfer to Ivana. But again, in the same way, as I said before, I think just like the Greens, I suspect that a lot of Social Democrat favouring voters looked and said, you know what, chances are, well, the reality is our candidate's not going to make it. Our candidate is not electable. Ivana is electable. If we all put it, if we all put the effort in, if we all pull the votes, let's get Ivana elected. When the general election of the locals come around, we can go, we can go back home. And then transfer. So I think I I wouldn't I wouldn't read too much into that. Also interesting on transfers because for a while there it looked like Ain was actually going to be uh, eliminated after the Social Democrats based on the transfers, but the Social Democrats were pushed over the top by I, I think people for profits votes. Yeah, they would have been. Yeah. What was actually particularly interesting, and I suppose this is the the real meat of the episode, is for a while there, it looked possible that if the the transfers hit the right way, that Aintu would be knocked out after the Fianna Fáil candidate. It was unlikely, but it wasn't impossible. It wasn't impossible, and 
if Mannix Flynn had been done maybe a little bit lower, or if the Social Democrats hadn't got the quite the boost, that yeah, it, it it could have happened. It it, it was it wasn't impossible. When A two went out, there were near a thousand, and Conroy's entire vote at that point was thirteen hundred. It's worth noting, like I mean, Mannix Flynn ends up. What, not much more than, a little bit more than 200 votes behind the Fianna Fáil candidate. Oh, Mannix Flynn was on, I I think, 1100 or 1200. He was, like, he had a fair chance to go out after. And I suppose this, this brings us to the, the, the crux of this. To my knowledge, this is the worst result Fianna Fáil have ever had in any sort of election of this type, by election or general election. You've had situations where a Fianna Fáil candidate maybe has had that has had that vote or lower than that vote individually. But in those in that situation, they would have been in constituencies where other Fianna Fáil candidates were running and the total Fianna Fáil vote would have been bigger. But here we're talking about Fianna Fáil, the only Fianna Fáil candidate in the field, garnering 4.6% of the first preference votes. And I I don't know of a situation of, of that happening before the lowest the lowest I can think of off the top of my head is I think just after the crash, one of the lads in Dublin got about you know, eight point five nine percent and that was when the party was devastated, and people barely knew who was running in elections. The party was in such incredible disarray, yeah, the party was it was it was in a bad way. But on that day, they still managed to get about around seventeen percent of the vote. Now, because they got because of the way the PR functions, they ended up at around twelve percent of the seats. Because when you start to go below a certain point, you get a neg- you get an an there's like in the same way as if you go if you if you if you if you come first in the first preference votes, you tend to get a bonus number of seats. When you drop that as as many votes as Fianna Fáil did, it has a negative effect. And you end up with a with uh like a, a punishment i don't know how to describe it. you get a, an extra punishment bonus where you lose more seats than your than than your votes would suggest but yeah the thing is gary now okay we're talking here about an incredibly low vote it is true that finnaval has been polling pretty consistently below the 17 percent that it got in the 2011 general election a vote which at the time we believed represented precisely the core bedrock of Fianna Fáil support in the country. Because to vote for Fianna Fáil in that election, you had to be just absolutely blinders on Fianna Fáil. And yet they have managed to go below that. And at times, I mean, well below that in polls. I mean, they've been 11, 12% in polls. But if we take all the polls globally, and assuming that when you're not, when you're not close to a general election, the actual numbers in any individual poll are kind of meaningless, but what they do show is a trend, but and the trend has seen them pretty solidly in that mid-teens area. I don't really want to talk about Deirdre Conroy as a, a candidate. I don't think she was a good candidate, but I think the to put this in perspective as to how bad this result is, in order to receive your expenses back after an election, you need to receive a number of votes equal to, I think, 25% of the quota. The quota in this case was 13,442. Deirdre Conroy could have doubled her vote share and still would not have hit the level required to have her expenses paid back. 
on, on count one, she's on 1,247. And then by count seven, where she's knocked out, she's on 1,402. There was not a single round where she received more transfers than James Gagan. So it's not just that she's not getting first preferences or Fianna Fáil are not getting first preference. They're not getting transfers either. I have never seen a candidate from a major party so just get so little transfers. But not from just one party, across the board. Like, we have seen spin. I mean, this there was spin already happening because I think there must have been a sense on the ground in Fianna Fáil that things were not going well. And today we've had more of this talking about the quality of the of the of her as a candidate, but the thing is, Gary, that works all very well up to a certain point. You can have a bad result, and you say, "Ah, well, you know, she wanted to be." She maybe gets nine percent. You know, she wasn't a great candidate. She, you know, she didn't break through. But when you go under five percent of the first preferences, I'm sorry, if you're Fianna Fáil and you have the pre- you have the pretenses that Fianna Fáil have to be the kind of party that they would like to be, you should be able to put a red setter up in a constituency in Ireland and get five percent of the first preferences. I, I think you're right on that. And also, they picked the candidate. Yeah. So if the candidate is that bad, well, that's your fault anyway. Not 20 years ago, Fine Gael could have run as a candidate a fucking portrait of Hitler and gotten <laughs> into double digits. <laughs> yes, that would be true. Even, even in this constituency. And this is not a constituency that has been, perhaps historically, a happy hunting ground. This is... This is uh, probably the bluest constituency in Dublin. I mean, outside of I mean, there were constituencies in 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 Cork where Finnegan would have taken two out of three seats and had a bigger vote. Now the question is, what does it mean? Obviously, that's why we're we're talking about it. Does it mean anything? Are are we are? And I'm sure there will be lots of people in Fianna Fáil who, when they're talking in public, will say it's a by-election. It doesn't really mean anything. We're in government. Maybe people were pissed off about the fact that we didn't come out of lockdown, or we we suffered because of that, which is all very well. But Finnegan didn't suffer like that. I mean, the Finnegan the Finnegan vote is just is a point down. It's but this is this is okay. It's true. It's a by election. You can't read into it the same way as you would. In other situations, but it's it's still a disastrously bad showing. And when you talk to Fianna Fáilers privately, and I spent a lot of the afternoon, evening, on the phone, talking to people and talking to party people, activists and others, and they would say they are they didn't believe it could be this bad. They knew it wasn't going to be good, but they didn't think it could be this bad. Absolutely right. It's a by-election. Maybe people just wanted to sock one to the government. But that kind of indicates they're going for some sort of alternative candidate. And it doesn't seem to me likely that someone is going, screw the government, elect Ivana Bacic. Yeah. And then give the you know, good, strong showing for Fine Gael at the same time. No, no. Uh, the Fine Gael votes held up solidly. And this, what you were saying before, Michael, about the 2011 election, where Fianna Fáil takes 17.4%. They, they drop something like 24% from the last election. It's a bloodbath. Calamitous. And you, everyone kind of goes, okay, this is the core of the Fianna Fáil vote. Fianna Fáil are being treated like the devil. The media is turning on them. 
oftentimes so the media can't be blamed for stroking any sort of frenzy of house building or buying. Yeah. But they are being just they are being turned into a scapegoat and just driven off into the desert. And it goes down to, to about seventeen percent. Okay, let's assume that is the Finnefall core. If that is the Finnefall core, what are we looking at here? No, obviously that was that was a that was the national vote. And the national it, I am I, I'm fairly sure that the I'm fairly sure that the uh, the results in two thousand eleven for Dublin Bay were less they they didn't get seventeen percent. But I'm pretty sure they didn't get four and a half percent either. So Dublin Bay South was created in two thousand and sixteen and before that there was no constituency which covered exactly the same area as Dublin Bay South. But if you look at Dublin South East and a lot of Dublin Bay South would have been in that constituency. 2011, Chris Andrews comes in and takes 11.2%. So 2011, Fianna Fáil do better in this area than they did now. In fact, they did twice as well in 2011 as they did now. Fun fact, in the same election, uh, Anne Ivanovacic ran in Dunleary and got 10%. I'll just lay out what I think happened here. I think Michal Martin engaged in a strategy of refocusing the party towards a more sort of socially liberal, middle-class, Irish Times reading, you know, progressive kind of voter, thinking that that was the future of Ireland. And then you, know, you have the Dublin strategy, where Fianna Fáil is deliberately trying to refocus its attention on Dublin and you know, rehouse itself there, basically, because there's such a concentration of people that they think it makes tactical or strategic sense. And they failed. They failed incredibly. Even in the last election, they failed in Dublin. But if this is indicative of anything like they're going to turn in in the general election, they're fucked broadly. We're going to be, pl- we're, we're, we're in a sense, going to be ploughing a field that we've ploughed before here, Gary. But he has pursued a policy at this stage, we call it a strategy, to be going on for getting on 10 years now. And, you know, you set success and failure standards in projects. I cannot see how at this stage you cannot say, okay, right, it's time to decide, has the strategy produced, met the standards for success, or has it indeed been a failure? And it seems obvious on the face of it that this strategy has not worked. And it and I don't know how they believed it could ever work. You're going after a vote in a country where that vote is already served by, depending where you are on the spectrum, left to right, but that progressive liberal Times reading vote. I mean, there was a question, and just um, there was a question somebody was asking on Twitter today. They, they heard the phrase that Michal Martin's problem was that he was the first Irish leader of the of Fianna Fáil who ever cared, who cared about what the Irish Times thought of him. Who who said that? Well, I don't know if it was, if it had been said before, but I know Cormac Lucy said it to me several years ago at a, at a, in Kilkenny at the Kilkenny, at the Kilkenomics or the economics comedy thing down there. And he said it was his opinion that the biggest problem with Michal Martin was he cared. He was the first leader of Fianna Fáil ever to give a damn what the Irish Times editorial said. And he does seem to know he had a group of advisors around him who a lot of people within Fianna Fáil weren't happy with because they didn't come from Fianna Fáil. They didn't have any roots in the party and they didn't really seem to understand the dynamics of the party or the nature of, 
of, of the electorate. I mean, there, there was a comment going around, I don't know if you saw it, Gary, that one of the problems Fianna Fáil has is that they're embarrassed by their voters. And I think there may be a, there's a, an, there may have been an element of truth in that, that these, the, 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 the people who were the originators of this strategy were a bit embarrassed by the kind of voters that they had. And they have ploughed this furrow in competition with Fine Gael, the Labour Party, the Social Democrats, the Greens, even to a degree, people like uh, some elements of Sinn Féin. They've been going after voters who are already incredibly well served. And not only well served, but served by people who are better at it. Substantially better at it. <laughs> well, I, with that, I, I don't know if that's true, but I'll tell you what is, it seems to be true. That at least those people who are on the sort of that progressive left wing side of politics, they believe in it. That is their political philosophy. That is their ideology. These are these are their convictions. Whereas with Fianna Fáil, there was very much a sense that people they were handed out sheets saying, these are our convictions now. This is what we believe now. Go off into the country and tell the people, this is what we believe now. And I don't think that a lot of these people actually were they weren't committed to this. This wasn't really who they were. This wasn't their political philosophy. This wasn't their ideology. No, political philosophy maybe is a very big term for what Fianna Fáil had. I mean, it was an organic party. It it was a national movement. It was always derided for that sense it had of itself, for being not so much a party, but rather a national movement. But there was a truth to that, that Fianna Fáil changed organically. It moved with the people. And it wasn't necessarily a cynical thing, oh, well, that's, that's the way the wind is blowing. But because they were a very broad-based party, which was present in every corner of the country, that inevitably, when social mores and ideas changed within the population, that was going to be reflected within Fianna Fáil. Because they weren't, in, they weren't a niche party. They were present in working-class Dublin, they were present in the middle-class areas, they were present in the professions. The small farmers, the big farmers. The cities, the towns, the market towns, and the rural areas, they were, they were everywhere. And they represent, so they, they changed organically with the country. So yes, they, as you say, the other people are better at it because they actually understand it. They understand these politics because they believe in them and they have roots with this politics. A lot of the Fianna Fáilers, they don't really, they have no sympathy with this. This isn't what they're about. Now, ironically, I think there would have been certainly members of Fianna Fáil who were on that side of things, if you like. But they were, I mean, we saw during the debates within the party, say at Ardeshna before the repeal, where the Ardesh voted two or three times and very substantially to oppose the repeal to oppose the repeal and to and to lay down as party policy that Fianna Fáil was a pro-life party or a pro-Eighth Amendment party that when it came to the TDs there were a number of TDs who were in favour of repeal but a significant majority of the of of of, of the of the TDs were were not they were they were in favour of the retention of the Eighth Amendment that was where they were so why would why would you believe that the party is something which is different than the profile of the of the TDs and not just the TDs the councillors and the activists that make up the party? Well, because you know you have to embrace this wonderful new progressive Ireland, Michael, in order to reposition the party, in order to take Dublin. And I what I think has happened in you you see this all the time in business, 
where people will look at their market share and say, well, that's secure. But if we change this in certain ways, if we change our product around or we change how it's advertised, we can get these other sectors or, or these other demographics that we're not getting. And they forget about the people they have up to that point been serving pretty well. And those people, maybe they don't buy a different product. Maybe they just don't buy yours anymore. I think Martin has managed to fracture the core Fianna Fáil vote. Because why would you even vote for them anymore? If you were a traditional Fianna Fáil voter, the grassroots has been, during Martin's tenure, neglected, ignored, and when they have come back and said things that Martin didn't like, basically told to fuck off. And head office has explicitly overruled votes of the membership. Something which they wouldn't have done before Martin, or with a great deal of trepidation touching it. If Fianna Fáil members believed that the party shared, the party at, at the top shared their values and was going in roughly the direction that they felt that the party should be going, I do not believe it would be possible that two Healy Rays would be elected in Kerry. I don't think that that would be simply possible. I don't know. I don't believe that you would, if you look around the country at all this, the plethora of rural independent TDs that there are from north to south, that those people would have been elected, at least certainly not in the numbers that they were, if Fianna Fáil voters were still intimately tied to the party. Most of these people are getting elected with Fianna Fáil votes. Even those even those candidates who are not actually Fianna Fáil, from a, shall we say the Fianna Fáil gene pool, and most of them are, but candidates like, say, Dennis Nocton and Michael Lowry, I know, well, I, listen, all, what, I, I'm going on anecdata here rather than data, but certainly I'm talking to people in Tipperary, they would tell you, they, they're convinced that Michael Lowry is pick, picking up a significant number of Fianna Fáil votes there that would never have voted for him. When he was a, when he was a Fine Gael minister, and I'm sure, I think that's it, the truth is saying saying for people like Dennis Nocton. I don't think that this, and also the word it's, it's I I want to point out as I have pointed out before, this sense that the only place there are there are seats to be picked up in Ireland, the only place there that there are that there is power to be found is in Dublin, and this is something which is routinely recited like a mantra both within political circles and within the media, to me is obviously gainsayed by the fact that these independents exist. And if they organise themselves, I mean, trying to get them into a political party would be absolutely impossible, it would be like herding cats. But in notionally, in theory, this is a group that, could, as a party, could happily look at picking up 15 seats in the rural areas. Now, that's a chunk of seats, Gary. We, I don't know if part of the problem is that there is some part of Fianna Fáil's psyche which still thinks of themselves as a party which should naturally have maybe not 70 or 80 seats, but 50 or 60 seats. And they haven't yet accepted that they are, that is not the party they are, that the, they're a party that would be bloody happy to get 40 seats, that they're not quite a niche party, but they're not they are no longer the kind of dominant presence that they were in Irish politics. But where once upon a time they were this catch-all thing, and Michal is, maybe Michal is thinking, okay, like you say, Gary, we have all those votes there. They're safe. Now we have to go and get the new votes, and then it'll all come together in this grand coalition like we used to have. But that's not working anymore, and it's not going to work. 
and even and culturally, the kinds of voters that he's going after in Dublin, it's not just that they don't believe in Fianna Fáil as a political entity or as an ideology or a philosophy. They're culturally hostile to them in their memory and their attitude towards them. These people think Fianna Fáil is something you scrape off the, sh the, 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 the sole of your shoe. They do not like them. They will always find someone else to vote for other than a Fianna Fáil candidate, barring they have some kind of personal connection with the with a specific Fianna Fáil candidate. This is not going to work. No, I mean, I've talked to multiple people inside Fianna Fáil, and over the past, it's been happening for a couple of years now, but since this government formation particularly, the amount of people who would have been involved in Fianna Fáil, but are no longer actively involved, they may not vote for anyone else. They may just not vote at all. But when you talk to them about who they're going to vote for, and they would have traditionally always voted Fianna Fáil because they were involved with the party they, mm. were, they were part of Fianna Fáil yeah. you just get this sense from talking to them when, when they talk about Fianna Fáil that they're just sort of going but why would I vote for Fianna Fáil what's the point they may vote for the local man or the local yeah. woman because they knew her father and that's the person in their local area and they have a, some kind of a connection with but that strong sense of connection, of identity with the party, I think has been massively diluted. And I think, I think part of that, they're correct. I, there seems to be a feeling that particularly more socially conservative people who would have been involved with Fianna Fáil, that their views are held openly in contempt by the leadership of Fianna Fáil. And I think to an extent they're correct. Oh, yeah, I don't think that's imagination. I don't think that's paranoia. I think there is a degree of contempt for these people. And Gary, let's if we go back, I mean, let's not get too much bogged down in numbers, but if we take the referendum, right? The abortion referendum rather than the gay marriage. I think it's a different kind of a thing. 33%. Now, we don't, it's, I, it's not actually on the face of it possible to say that 33% of the people who voted for the retention were all of one single political stripe. Because I know that there were people on the far left that I came across who were voting for the eighth. And there were people on the far right who were voting for for the eighth. But it's it's talked about as if that 33% was nothing. Oh, it's only 33%. Now, we've talked of before that actually, when you look at that number, and people have said that when you take into account um, substantial numbers of people on the, the home to vote, the, the vast majority of whom it, it, it's believed actually voted for repeal. You strip those numbers out and then you look at the real numbers you're talking about when it comes to a general election, that that 33% goes up into the 40s. And then you consider the fact that there were a number of people who voted to repeal the 8th, but were still people who were deeply uncomfortable with the idea of abortion and were very had they had the choice they would have voted for something very restrictive if that had been available to them but they became convinced for various reasons that it was necessary to vote for repeal but these people are not progressives they are the, the assumption that that 66 percent is inhabited only by people who are socially liberal and very progressive is simply not the case the idea that we have become this monolithically progressive country is simply not true. But who is serving that 
there's a there's a massive gap there in the market and you've been talking about this for, for years and you've just on the basis of the numbers purely on the numbers if you were looking at ireland as a market gary put it that way and you were going to introduce a product into the into this market where do you see the gap the areas that are most underserved are the areas on the right that is those are the most underserved areas however if you want to look at the area that has the highest concentration of people in Ireland versus the amount of actual political parties serving it, it's on the what would be called the authoritarian or conservative left. They would be the you know, working class people who are nationalistic, traditionally minded, many of them not ideological at all. Yes. Just, you know, the traditional Fianna Fáil voter, I would say. A lot of you know, small shopkeepers, things like that. The thing, the sort of, the sort of people that we have seen all across Europe and in many other countries, a resurgence of political parties serving that demographic and doing very, very well out of it. And a demographic that one would have expected Fianna Fáil to be able to rebuild itself in after the 2011 election. And instead they left it entirely. And I think part of that is why we saw Sinn Féin grow, because Sinn Féin were able to go into these areas and they were able to take them. If you ever look at yeah. the beliefs of the average Sinn Féin voter versus the policies of the party, they have the largest discrepancy of any party in the country. There is the most variance between what Sinn Féin voters say they believe and Sinn Féin policies of any party. And that absolutely seems like something that shouldn't have happened if Fianna Fáil was there. But they weren't. They left it alone. What we used to call the breakfast for old man. The aspirational working class. Small business guy. The, 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 the tradesman working for himself. That was your classic Fianna Fáil voter. Particularly in the, in the urban areas. They have been abandoned. So they have ended up voting for Sinn Féin. Even though, as you say, the, the gap between their values and the values expressed to the par- at the policy level by the party, is that gap is bigger between them and between them than any other political party in the country. And they have, th- there is a, cr- a weird no- fact, as you said, we've seen this, we, we, we've seen it in, 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 in England with the Tories, where the Tories have moved to the left on economics because they know that for the left, it's much harder for the left to move to the right on culture. And they have managed to succeed in places in the Midlands and the north of England, traditional labour centres of voters, but people who are, I want, I don't, I, the word nationalistic has become loaded. But shall we say there are people who are, who display tra- the traditional memes of patriotism. They stand up for the national anthem. There is, they like the Queen. They they have a, a great fondness and a connection to the armed forces. They respect the police. These kinds of what you call traditional, maybe small C conservative values. Values which they didn't feel were being respected increasingly by a progressive metropolitan Labour Party. And they have gone, they are now voting Tory. Voting Tory in places they've never been seen before. We've seen this in France, we've seen it in Italy, we've seen it in, certainly in places like Poland, in Hungary. Uh, even we won't get into the politics of the Czech Republic and Slovakia, but all over the, all over the, we saw it probably to an extent even in the United States with the election of, of Donald Trump. 
there was a real opportunity there, but that's, that, that opportunity was squandered. I think the thing that is particularly galling about this is when you're talking about what can Fianna Fáil do to ensure that this is not replicated at a general election, is that the, the high-level answer is that all Fianna Fáil has to do is be Fianna Fáil, as it traditionally was understood. That's all they have to do, and they are incapable of doing it. I, I'm saying to Fianna Fáilers before, you know the thing about Fianna Fáil right now? You don't even have to be socially conservative across the board. That's who you are. What, it would be enough right now in Irish politics to be tolerant and sympathetic towards people who are. Allow them to have a voice, allow them to have an opinion, and for, that feel, and for those people to feel that that opinion was respected and not dismissed or disliked. Just be a party where it is possible to be a social conservative without feeling like you're some kind of troglodyte. But that seems to, even that seems to be not at, at, at the higher level. I don't think this is true, by the way, Gary, at, at, in, in commons and coily cantors around the country. I don't think this is the experience they have when they're dealing with their local TDs or their councillors. But this is the feeling they get from the top leadership. And they feel alienated. They do not feel represented by these, by these people. But is it whether I don't know if it's if it's sim, if it's as simple as get rid of Michael Martin, throw somebody else in, and and let's let's go back in time. There's something very attractive about the idea you can do that, but I don't know if that's possible. Right now, shall we say you say oh, it is still it is true that Fiona has no identity. I would say you say it it should be for. I'd say the first thing they should try and do is be for something. Try in some sense to be distinctive. I can't think of one thing about Fianna Fáil policy at the moment which is distinctive. Fianna Fáil is reaching a point, and may have already reached a point, where they may be hated by certain sectors, the more progressive sectors that they are spending their time trying to appeal to. But in general, they're not... They've moved from hate to apathy. It's not even that there's a lot to dislike about Fianna Fáil now. It's becoming irrelevant. But exactly, what what would you what would you dislike about them? In a comparison that may be offensive to both the religious and to those Fianna Fáil TDs who I know are actually regular listeners of the show. So I'm going to preface this by saying there's no bile in this at all. Fianna Fáil at the minute reminds me of the first time I sat down with Catholic bishops. And you've heard all these stories about how these people ran the country and were these great forces on the culture and they had all of this control and everything. And you sit down with them and in about five minutes, you realise that these are timid, broken men. And all you're left with is a vague sense of pity and a sort of wonder of how they went from what they were to what they are now, and if it's possible to go backwards. There, in a sense, maybe is the real crux of the problem. Fianna Fáil, for years in Ireland, had almost this mythic quality about them in their capacity to do politics. They were just the bit, they were good at it. They knew how to do it. People always, there was the great questions that people used to say, how is it that Fianna Fáil have been so consistently more successful than Fine Gael in Irish politics since they first came to power in thirty two? Well, there were lots of people who speculated about, 
oh, misuse of a power and corruption and patronage and all sorts of things. It seemed to me that, well, that there may have been an element of that, but the largest element was they were much better in opposition than Fine Gael were. And because they were better in opposition, they spent less time in it. They opposed and they opposed savagely and they were relentless and they were organized on the ground and they knew when they had a job to do and they went out and they did it. They were good at what they did. They were good at the art of politics. What's disturbing if you're looking at it now, and I want to say, I'm not a member of Fianna Fáil, neither are you. But I think our concern is that, you know, if nothing else, that Ireland needs another party that actually does some opposing, that actually oppose, that can question the almost depressing level of unanimity there is about so many issues, which isn't necessarily reflected in the voters, but the voters are left with these fait accomplis again and again because of this general agreement which is ha happens at this weird culture that we have now in Irish politics. In the last 10 years, it's like Fianna Fáil have forgotten how to do politics. I was saying I was on the phone today, I was ringing around to people, and one of the things that struck me was, uh, one of the questions, of course, I was asking, well, first question, what did you think of the result? Waiting to see if somebody would say, ah, sure, you know, it's not too bad. All of them, oh, it's a disaster. It's awful. It's dreadful. I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I would say, okay, well, is it, is this going to, is this the spark that is going to lead to a, a heave against Mihal? None of them believed that there was the will or the appetite within the parliamentary party to do it. A couple of them said, well, we think that maybe when it comes to the time to change hands uh, over that when he's not Taoiseach anymore, which they, they think, I would say next, maybe next October, then there'll be a move against him. Because they, they all seem to believe that Michal will not actually resign after he stops being Taoiseach, but will stay on to be tarnished. He quite like to be tarnished for a while too. And I said, so, but lads, that's another year and whatever, a year and a quarter of just bleeding. You've been doing this for 10, what, you're going to leave him in doing the same things, following the same policies, make, taking the same line, appointing the same people and, or imposing the same people in constituencies. Just going to let it bleed? Well, you know, what can you do? I don't know. What can you? There is, there should be. You would have thought at this stage, boiling mass of people in there, going, demanding the head, uh, on the stick. But there's no desire. There's, it's like, they're all terrified of losing their seats, and they all said that. The number of safe seats right now, and, the, and we shouldn't again, we say again, we the caveat emptor, we take this as a by-election and all that. But there will be a lot of people looking at this thinking, oh my God, that's a disaster. I could lose my seat. The number of safe Fianna Fáil seats in the country is probably less than 15. Uh, solid safe seats. And yet, they don't seem to have any sense of what action they could take that might save their seat. They're like a bunch, they're stood in front of four doors and the, you know, was it, is it Balaam's ass that dies of hunger because it's equi, equi, he's placed equidistant between two piles of hay and can never decide which way to go, so ends up dying of hunger? They're like a bunch, they're like Balaam's ass. In that, they, they're there and they don't know, will we go this way, will we go that way? And they're, be, they're, they're stymied by the crisis. There's no decisiveness there at all. There's no, you know what, this, 
in life, it, in, in business, I was taught, and I think there's a truth to it, 99% of the decisions you make, Gary, actually don't make any difference. Because you're generally speaking, you're choosing between fairly similar things. The thing that you have to do sometimes, you have to make a decision. And these people seem to be incapable of doing that. Getting rid of Martin on its own is not enough to turn this around. They absolutely need to, to do things. But I think it's an essential part of turning this around. Martin chose this course. Martin stuck to this course. Martin is going to go down with this course. And he has been unable, despite the growing warring signs, either to realise that this is going badly or to choose to do something else. I think Michal at this stage would will tell you, and he probably believes himself, that there is no other choice. This is it. No, there's no other choice in which Michal continues in his position. Michal needs to be taken out, put behind the barn, and then discreetly disposed of somewhere. Yeah. And not in a year and a half, not when he finishes draining the corpse of blood. It needs to happen now. And it needs to happen now for a couple of reasons. One of them being quite practical. If you do it now, Fine Gael won't bring down the government when he goes. Yes. For the very simple reason that with the current doll arithmetic and the way the polls are going, they bring down the government, Sinn Féin becomes the second largest party, well, who are they going to go into government with? And things can get a bit dodgy there. And, you know, I mean, there are people, Gary, who would worry that in Fine Gael and not, uh, uh, that maybe, maybe Sinn Féin don't end up with the second largest party. Well, I mean, actually, that uh, I think might be also a good point. So you do it now, you do it when things are known, when you know that people are concerned about Sinn Féin, and you use that to get rid of him. Because if you wait, he's going to embed himself like a tick. If he's already thinking about staying on as Tarnishta, he's not going to leave. And this every now and then at the parliamentary parties, which are being fantastically, basically live-streamed now, yeah, due to the amount of people who are leaking <laughs> from inside them. Every now and then someone, someone stands up and says, well, you should resign. He shouldn't resign. At this point, it's not his fault. It's your fault. He needs to be gotten rid of because he's not going to go himself. And for all of this, well, we're concerned about our own seats. If this is replicated in the general election, in politics, at a, at a constituency level, there are certain candidates where the party name brings them up. The party name gets them elected. There are other candidates, the party name doesn't matter at all. People whose seats are just secure through their own votes and people vote for them on that basis. And then there's the other case where the party name is so bad that having it attached to you will bring you down. At this polling level, even people whose seats should be secure based on their personal votes will lose their seats because having Michal Martin attached to them will cause it. Martin needs to go and they won't do it. And because they won't do it, it's their own fault. But there's no point in replacing Martin with Kenny Lee Martin than just replacing him with a different face that sounds and, and, and says the same things as Michal does. You, and pursues the same direction that me that you have to have somebody who comes out and ha who has an actual idea of a vision that he wants to articulate no and there are other people inside the hierarchy of finifal who should be gotten rid of with martin and if anyone in finifal is interested in knowing those people assuming they don't know them already send me an email i've got a list 
<laughs> it's funny. More than, there is at the moment, uh, before this election, before the by-election, I should point out, soundings are being taken within the party. There, people are being asked throughout the party, or Octus members, Stormers, or Octus members, senior people, senior people in the party are being asked what they think is going on and what uh, is happening and where should they go. Now, and I, a number of them, <laughs> I think, have been sent in lists of what they think should be happening that will not be met with pleasure uh, when the results are being collated that there you're not the only one with the list for very significant changes at the top of the party i mean they're faced with a choice i suppose do they go with somebody if they get rid of him i mean and that's the other thing who the the, the, the says well who do we replace him with and this is this has obviously been a large part of their concern and people have been concerned that if they're the person who takes out martin well then they won't be long for leadership themselves yeah. To which I would counter, if you don't take out Martin, there's a high likelihood you won't be getting elected again anyway. So it's going to be irrelevant. It'll be it'll be a, a, a kind of a null question after that. It'll be a moot. It, the, the, the obvious name is either Jim O'Callaghan. I can't actually see that Jim O'Callaghan, even though he might come, might have a, a more, shall we say, in-your-face personality than Michal. I don't see that you're going to see great policy changes with Jim O'Callaghan. Uh, Darrell O'Brien obviously has would have uh, hopes in that direction. Michal McGrath, Lisa Chambers' name has been mentioned. I find that interesting. It's like being shot and then deciding it'll be fine if you get someone else to shoot you again. Yeah. The one name that did occur a number of times, and always in the same way, was somebody said, he's not liked really. He doesn't have a great support within the party. But you never know when people, if people came to a conclusion that he might be the man that might save their seats, he could actually maybe get some traction. And that's Mr. McGuinness in Kilkenny. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, every time he's come up in conversation, I've had the same thing of, well, he's not well liked. And he's not well liked because John McGuinness will walk up to you and put a knife right through you. <laughs> yeah. And he won't even try and excuse it. He'll just do no, it. No, 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 he'll do it. He is, he's very, he, he is in some senses the wonderfully old-fashioned Fianna Fáil TD in that the way he manages his councillors and the way he deals. I, I, I don't know the man at all, but I've, I have observed, observed him at work and I, I have to say I quite like it. I mean, there's something about it that smacks of the old days. John McGuinness is, is a shark and has all of the warmth, empathy and loving nature of an industrial wood chipper. <laughs> but on the other hand, this is a roll of the dice. If you get rid of Martin and you reposition, you get one shot at it. And it might not work. So, I mean, if you had one person you could put in and you knew was going to try and give it the all and wouldn't be afraid to, you know, get the hands dirty, get the hands bloody, maybe get the knees bloody, McGuinness is not a bad bet. There's a number of things, I think, that are strongly going for McGuinness. The first thing is, at a personal level, He's a very successful businessman. He has created a very and run a very successful business. So he's a competent person. And he's also he he also is therefore sympathetic to people in business. And I think that's an important thing. They have to start looking like a party that actually cares about people who work and want to take home a few quid and get on in life. And I think me and I think Mark I think McGuinness would would certainly look like that kind of person. I think he would be that kind of person. Second thing is, 
even though he doesn't garner a great deal of warmth or affection within the party, he is actually quite, he's quite, Fianna, he's quite friendly to non-Fianna Fáil voters. He has a, he has a profile. I mean, remember when he was chairman of the, 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 was it the finance committee? Yeah, yeah, and it went so well that everyone decided it was time to scale back the finance committee's powers. Exactly. And he made a series of TV uh, appearances and he spoke, shall we say, in a forthright manner. And a lot of people liked it and they liked the work that he was doing. They felt that he was competent. They felt he was asking the right questions. He was doing a good job. He, because he's that little bit semi-detached from the party in some ways, and I, I don't think that's maybe an accident for the way he's presented himself. He is in a position, I think, to attract people to Fianna Fáil that would not necessarily otherwise be attracted by your bog standard, you know, party faithful type of guy. He also is a social, I mean, I don't know if he's, you call him a social conservative, but he certainly is within that wing of the party. He was, he, he took a, a position and quite a strong position on, on, on the Eighth Amendment, which I think surprised people. Uh, generally speaking, he certainly wouldn't be hostile to those people. They, this would, they would not feel that this was a party that didn't want them or wasn't going to respect them. But at the same time, he's not the kind of guy who will repel more liberal or more progressive voters, because that's, he, he he, that's not the kind of aura he has. Uh, I'm not sure that he, he would be a collegial leader. I'm not sure. Then again, I don't think Martin is either, by the way. No, I mean, Charlie Hockey threatened to defenestrate people. <laughs> yeah, but that was Charlie. Bertie loved everybody to death. That was his way of doing it. But I think and I'm saying that about Martin because one thing that people do talk about Martin is that Martin comes across as this love, you know, sort of re reflective, inclusive kind of a guy. But actually, that's not really what Michal Martin is about. Michal Martin can be as shall we say, as tough a bully politician as anybody. And if you fall outside of, if you, if you don't, if you embarrass them or you don't do what you should be doing, you, know, you, you will be cast out into the outer darkness. So McGuinness, I mean, if, speaking of somebody standing outside, looking outside, from outside in, to me, McGuinness looks like uh, an interesting choice. The other name that cropped up, which kind of surprised me, was when people said, well, maybe the, the idea, maybe we just need to jump a generation. And Jack Chambers, a couple of people said Jack Chambers. Um, I think he's probably a nice guy, uh, competent enough, bright enough, but... But no. But no, not, not yet. Maybe in time, but time is not something they currently have. I mean, I have... Members of Finnafal, sitting members of Finnafal, have described McGuinness to me as a monster. But you know what, Gary? Wouldn't a monster be a good thing to have? Another thing that people have said, and again, I don't know if this is the way to think about it, but they said, listen, what we need to do is resign ourselves to opposition. We need to get into opposition and be the opposition. And I think that if that's the kind of place you're going to be, McGuinness is the guy. Back in the day, Nora Owen was Minister for Justice, I think, and John O'Donoghue, the bull, from Kerry was the Fianna Fáil spokesman on justice. And I, I always think of it as just a, 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 the classic Fianna Fáil playbook in opposition. Noron couldn't, couldn't cross the street, but Donoghue would be up in the doll in a fish 
of rage and contempt for that minister has done this. And that. Didn't matter. He destroyed the poor woman. At the end of it, I mean, she didn't want to go near the place. It was just relentless. And that was a very that was the Botfield folk used to do when they were when they knew doctors. And I think that if nothing else, a little bit of something combative that would do them no harm. It would at least give them a sense of distinctiveness. One of the things I've noted in some of the conversations with Finnefall is a sort of weary resignation and acceptance. Now, in other people, that's combined with a, a total unwillingness to look reality in the face here. Yeah. But in some of them, there's just an acceptance of how this is going. And there's no hope. There's just, you know, this is what's happening. And one thing you can say about McGuinness is McGuinness is not like that. He will drag the party somewhere, even if it's behind the shed to put it out of its misery. Yeah, I, I can't see McGuinness just accepting it. I mean, he, he'll, he'll do something, whether or not he succeeds. But you know what? I think, lads, it's last chance saloon here. The other, the, what was the, there was a phrase which was used after the Second World War by civil servants in, in the UK when the empire was gone and the old, the power was declining and even the industrial thing, the, the Germans were doing better. The French, the Italians were having their very, were, were, were coming up on the outside. And it was called, I can't remember the exact phrase, it was like managed to decline. Managed decline, yeah. The managed decline of the empire. The managed decline. And I think that there is an element with Fianna Fáilers, some Fianna Fáilers, that just see this as a question of managed decline. I don't think John McGuinness would buy into that. And if they want to be serious about being continuing in, in business as a political party, then you want someone who doesn't see this, his job is going to be managed to decline. There's no perfect candidate amongst Fianna Fáil. There's not even a clear leadership candidate to replace Martin. There's people who have the votes and might be able to do it, but there's no one who has any sort of proven leadership capacity at this level. There are people who may develop it, but they haven't displayed it so far. Yeah. McGuinness is many things, but he's not a loser. And the other thing about McGuinness is McGuinness has no sentimentality about his positions. If McGuinness thinks taking a position will lead him to win, he will take that position. Within certain constraints. He's also not bland. And I think for Fianna Fáil right now, the great enemy is blandness. They're just disappearing into a background of white bread and margarine. There's nothing about them. You, you put your finger on it earlier. There's nothing offensive about them now. There, there, are, going to, there are people left around who still hate them because of it's a kind of a folk memory. People who are, who are old enough to have been in the business back when Hawhey was leader and they hated Hawhey and they hated Albert for different reasons and they hated Bertie for another set of different reasons. But you, that's what you did. You hated them. But that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a, a diminishing group these days. Most people don't bother to hate them because why would you? There's nothing to hate. There's nothing about them. I think for Fianna Fáil, Martin needs to go bring in someone Personally, I would be quite partial to John McGuinness. I think he would be good at it. And try and move into that conservative left space. The economic policies are already there. They're not economic policies I like, but they're ones that are going to be very comfortable to many of the Fianna Fáilers. They don't even have... To, the economic policies don't necessarily even have to be left. Fianna Fáil has always seen itself as a centre-left party from the foundation from the foundation of the party. And... If you if you read the if you ever had a membership card and it's the aims and the values of the party it's these it, it's it's certainly left left of centre 
but it's never been left for centre in a Marxist or socialist way. It's not a worked out philosophy. It's not a, a philosophy which is about the re, some kind of activist redistribution of wealth to create equality of outcomes and that. That's not. It's more a sense of you know helping the widow and the orphan, helping out the the man, the, the chap who has who has had a bit of trouble, free education make sure everybody can access to health has access to health care because these are good things to do for your fellow citizen rather than some kind of worked out ideological belief in how the shape of society should be and i can think you can do that within an within a, a part without at the same time being hostile to business i would be interested for example in what john mcginnis's opinions would would be about how you go about getting more houses built in the country and if there are people that come out and can't stand them, that will just mean that the medicine is working. You've got these Fianna Fáil TDs being told to go out day after day and talk about these things like the need to end conversion therapy or the need to bring in hate speech laws. And you look at it and you sort of go, you're not winning any votes here. Regardless of whether or not I agree with you on the particular topic you're talking about, no one is voting for you because the people who are really motivated by this think you're scum. And the people who actually want to vote for you are baffled by it. They, I, Maybe they're opposed to it. More likely, they just don't care about it. And then they see you there talking about it as if it's the most pressing issue of the day and sort of look at it and go, is this what I'm meant to care about now? Because I don't. Pick a couple of topics, pin a flag down, shoot Martin and dump him somewhere and roll the dice and you may actually get out of this. Or you can just enjoy the you know, new coke of Fianna Fáil that Martin has created and just go to the wall. And if you're going to go to the wall anyway, you may as well roll the dice and see what happens rather than just going meekly into the night and getting nowhere in the end and thinking to yourself, you know, if we'd actually taken him out, maybe we could have kept going. Maybe we wouldn't have destroyed what was a very proud party. If they, they're still in a position, I, I think it's not, I don't think it's too late. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is all over. And they will just gradually wind down and become a little bit what, like what the Labour Party was for a long time, a series of strong local personalities that happened to be bound notionally by a party identity, but ultimately are just little kings in their individual fiefdoms. And you end up with maybe a dozen TDs, maybe a bit less over time. But I, don't, I, I think they still have time. But well, I, I qualify by by saying, but time to be in a party that can still pick up thirty five or forty seats. But in our system, Gary, right now the way politics is fractured, thirty five or forty seats will make you a very very powerful party in the doll. Well, here's the thing: in any situation, in in organizational psychology, sometimes terrible things happen that everyone agrees shouldn't happen because it's already happening. And if you just let it happen, it's not your fault because it was what was happening. Yes. But if you get involved and it goes badly, you'll be blamed. Yes. So you often see inside quite large organizations, things snowball into catastrophic issues because at no point did someone just go, you know what? Fuck this. We'll just solve it. And it could have been fixed easily. And you may have even got some credit for it. And you see this in the civil service, you see it in private businesses. And I think you're going to see it in Fianna Fáil, very much so now. No one wants to be the first knife in. I, I, well, I think that's true, but I also think it's, a, it, it's in a way worse than that. I don't think they know where the knives are, where they keep them. And I don't know if they even know if it's the thing to do. 
they genuinely are stymied by the situation. They they're confused. I think the analogy with with the bishops after the nineties is actually a perfectly apt one. They're going around in the words of P. G. Woodhouse like a stunned duck. They're going in, they're wandering around in no particular direction, but with no sense of where they need to be going. And they just don't know. Should we take him out? Should we leave him in? If we're going to take him out, should we do it now? Should we wait for a year? Should we wait for two years? Should, what, should, what, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. They're just in this paralysis of doubt. On, on the thing with the bishops, when you when I remember when I was talking to them, and they start talking about the child sex abuse scandals, because that's, I mean, that was a decade after it, and that was still yeah. all they wanted to talk about. Yeah. And they were still concerned about showing contrition for it. And yes, contrition is very important. But they're working on the assumptions that if they're contrite enough and if they display the right opinions, that the people who hate them will like them. And that's never going to happen. Those people are always going to hate you. They're getting energy from it. You apologizing and bowing and scraping doesn't improve your lot. It simply makes those people who would have supported you look at you with a growing sense of pity or concern as to whether they themselves are wrong to support you. And you see this with the church. The church does an incredible amount of charitable enterprises and homeless services in everything. And they're so consumed with doubt and they're so apologetic, they, they never put forward a strong defence of their own reasons and their own positives. And you see that with Fianna Fáil. All you do is you end up, by constantly doing that, you all, all you do is reminding people of the thing that some of, that you're reminding people have forgotten of precisely why you should be apologising in the first place. A classic is that it's Fianna Fáil. You meet Fianna Fáil who are terrified of talking about the fact that we need more builders to come in and build more houses and how can we help builders. Oh yes, because then we'll be linked too strongly to builders. Oh God, not the builders. Don't talk about builders. It's like you don't mention the war. But actually, you know, what we need is a party that has some sympathy to people who build houses, because right now we don't have anybody. The end result of that was that you didn't put in place policies that would have related to builders that might have actually worked and improved things and therefore led to a better electoral performance. Because you were so terrified of being linked to people, you're already fucking linked to. And and you're never and you're never going to be allowed to forget it anyway, but there you go. Listen, I'm sure as we as we're talking now and people are listening to this, that people uh, prominent members of Fianna Fáil and members of the Parliamentary Party are taking copious notes and will act on our advice as they always do. Um, so we can be confident that there will be changes shortly and that I, I expect that John McGuinness will be offering us both senior position, advising advisory positions in his new, in his new uh, administration. I never thought I would be recommending that John McGuinness be made the leader of Finnefall. And by the way, that would theoretically could also mean make him Taoiseach. Yeah, yeah, never thought I'd be recommending that. But then again, things just developed in ways you, you don't see. Events, dear boy, events. <laughs> just to close on, on one point, Michael, uh, it's one I brought up before. If someone in a position where they're harming an organisation refuses to leave and is allowed stay, after a certain amount of time, it moves from being that person's fault to being the fault of the people who are letting him stay there. The votes are there to remove Michal Martin. They've been there for a long time. At this point, he can no longer be blamed for the damage he is doing to Finna Fáil. It is now the fault of the people who can take him out 
and are choosing not to do so. Yes, at this stage, it's on. It's up to them. It's not his fault anymore. Their inaction is now a sin of omission, which they will or will not be held responsible. We shall see. My strong suspicion is we shall see nothing. But tune in, and we'll <laughs> tune in next week for another episode. <laughs> in what the hell is happening? We will be back on Wednesday. Bye-bye. All the best.